0: Welcome to Podship Earth. This is your host, Jared Blumenfeld.
1: Mark the sound of myriad voices
2: rising in their minds.
0: From the campaign to end slavery, to the suffragette movement, to the struggles of the civil rights era, Americans have marched, protested, and stood up for ideals greater than our narrow self-interest. These values define what it means to be part of an active democracy. Few of us will ever face arrest for an act of environmental civil disobedience. And I tell myself that there must be more effective avenues. But I'm also nervous about going to jail, about what it would do to my chances of getting a job in the future. Are we getting so timid and bureaucratic in our defense of nature that we no longer represent a genuine force for change? Today, we gain the perspective of someone who's been on the front lines of the protest movement to protect nature. Randy Hayes was born in West Virginia and grew up in Florida. Randy helped create the Earth First movement in the early 1980s. And in 1985, he founded Rainforest Action Network a grassroots organization that forced Burger King, Home Depot, Mitsubishi, and countless other multinationals to stop clear-cutting ancient forests. He's now the executive director of Foundation Earth, an organization rethinking how we protect the planet's life support systems. For Randy, this requires a new human order, including economic models for deep, long-term sustainability and environmental health. This week, Randy was in town to receive an honorary doctorate from the San Francisco State University. Randy started his career making a film about the negative impacts coal and uranium mining were having on Native American reservations in the Four Corners, the area where Colorado, Utah, Arizona, and New Mexico meet. That film, Four Corners, a National Sacrifice Area, won the Academy Award in 1983 for Best Student Documentary. So, Randy, after spending 10 years making this film in the desert, you got to go to Hollywood?
1: We drove in my hippie van out of the southwest where we were filming and distributing the film and uh, back to the people that we filmed originally, you know, Indian chiefs and governors and Mormon ranchers. We went into Hollywood and they whined and dined us and we were presented the award.
0: A lot has changed in the four corners. A lot hasn't changed.
1: Quite a lot has not changed, you know. Uh, and the remoteness of the area is its greatest asset keeping its integrity. From 1973 to 1983 was my stint, where I was essentially um, secretary and chauffeur to the Hopi elders, the Hopi Indian tribe being the oldest tribe in North America. And that that was my real graduate school training in deep long-term thinking and sustainability, geologic time and such things of consequence. But I had completed the film and the distribution of the film, and so I thought it was time for another step. And being a person who likes extremes, I went from the desert to the rainforest. But it was essentially the same story. It was a remote piece of geography with indigenous peoples whose worldview was quite different than the dominant industrial civilization with insensitive governments and overbearing corporations.
0: You're ready to fight yeah, for the earth. Yeah. Where's well, that gone? Where has that gone from the movement? The environmental movement's become kind of a little tepid. Not a little tepid, you know, hideously
1: tepid. You know, I don't know where the courage is, uh, you know, waned off to, but it's, it strikes me that a lot of it is, is, is a lack of courage. You know, I mean, if you go back into the David Brower days and the early days of the Sierra Club, when he was the first executive director, most of the main characters weren't professional environmental activists, you know, they were nature lovers who hiked and climbed and, and and you know, also made a living in their respective businesses. When they started paying salaries and became professional staff, you know, it had a downside to it that most people are unaware of. And that's where, you know, kind of bureaucrats want to protect their job and they lose the sense of the real mission. So they lose that sense of drive, you know, that sort of go for the throat. Let's get the job done.
0: You represented a... Kind of blend of going for the jugular, but you also were pretty practical and said the jugular of the industries that are destroying the planet are their bottom line.
1: It was sort of in the late nineteen eighties that the uh, what used to be called a corporate buy- boycott got shifted to what now gets called a market campaign. And that really came
0: from Mike Rosell, who was one of my sort of
1: inspirations along the way, one of the founders
0: of Earth First. Earth First was founded in 1980 by Dave Foreman and Mike Rosell. Earth First is not an organization. There are no members. It's a belief in biocentrism. It doesn't accept a human-centered worldview of nature for people's sake. Instead, they believe that life exists for its own sake, that industrial civilization and its philosophy are anti-Earth, anti-woman, and anti-liberty. Earth First's structure is non-hierarchical, and they reject highly paid professional staff and formal leadership. Edward Abbey's book, The Monkey Wrench Gang, was an inspiration to the founding of Earth First. The fictional book focuses on a plan to destroy the Glen Canyon Dam.
1: We wanted to interview Edward Abbey, who wrote The Monkey Wrench Gang, because he's such an icon of the Southwest. Edward Abbey lived outside of Tucson, so we figured we'd have to drive my hippie van down to Tucson and do the interview. But in fact, Edward Abbey called up and he said, "You know, instead of Tucson, meet us near the Glen Canyon Dam, and plan to stay for a couple of days. Something is going to happen." Well, we knew nothing more than that. But hey, it's Edward Abbey, you know. We were in worship of this man, and so that's what we did. We rolled into the camp. It turned out to be the birth of the Earth First movement. They had made, you know, the dam is is something like. 400 feet, 600 feet high. And they'd made like a 300 foot long black plastic stripe that was all rolled up and they, to symbolize a crack in the dam. And we were there for a couple of days. And at one point, um, you know, Mike Rozelle and Dave Foreman and, and those rednecks for wilderness jumped the barbed wire fence, ran out onto the middle of the dam, tied off each end, dumped this roll over the side and we made this cult little film and that that stripe just kept on rolling and unrolling and unfurling, you know, down, you know, hundreds of feet. It was just a magical moment that symbolized free the river, you know, crack the dam, get rid of the dams, free the river, free the Colorado. And we we filmed it from the visitor center up there where Edward Abbey jumped in the back of this beat up old wooden pickup truck and delivered like a Gettysburg address for nature.
0: Right, which I sound recorded. Randy, it just so happens that we have a copy of the rare archival recording you made of Edward Abbey laying out an Earth-first agenda. Here it is.
2: More river diversion projects, more strip mining of our mountains, clear-cutting of our forests, the misuse of water, the abuse of the land, all for the sake of short-term profit, all to keep the industrial military empire going and growing until it finally reaches the point where it must self-destruct and destroy itself. What is the use of building a great city if you haven't got a tolerable planet to build it on? Earth first. How can we create a civilization fit for the dignity of free men and women if the globe itself is ravaged and polluted and defiled and insulted? The domination of nature leads to the domination of human beings. The empire is striking back So we must continue to strike back at the empire by whatever means available to us. Win or lose, it's a matter of honor. Oppose, resist, subvert, delay until the empire itself begins to fall apart. And until that happens, enjoy. Enjoy the great American West, what's left of it. Climb those mountains, run those rivers, hike those canyons, explore those forests, and share in the beauty of wilderness, friendship, love, and the common effort to save what we love. Do this, and we'll be strong and bold and happy. We will outlive our enemies. And as my good old grandmother used to say, we'll live to piss on their graves.
1: I met all the founders of Earth First. Mike Grisell was the one who, who said, look, you know, if we really want to get these corporations, we could be a bunch of hippies demonstrating on the logging roads and blockading it and bearing ourselves up to our neck or chain signing, chaining ourselves to the trees. Or, you know, all of that stuff. But but uh, he said, let's go to their biggest customers. And Home Depot buys from all the logging companies, right? They're the number one customer for all these logging companies. So if we could get Home Depot to the biggest retailer of wood on planet Earth at that time.
0: Right? What year was this, Randy?
1: Uh, this is around 88, I think. If we could get them to send letters out to all of their suppliers, meaning the giant logging companies, saying, we won't buy your wood unless it's FSC certified, Forest Stewardship Council certified, low-impact logging, you know, less destructive logging, but not good logging, at any rate. uh, So that was the market campaign strategy. And that really came from from Mike
0: Then there was kind of this counter movement of the wise use, sustainable use movement that Basically, just as the climate deniers are today, they basically were saying, Earth First, they're a bunch of terrorists. They should be labeled as terrorists. These aren't activists. These aren't environmentalists. They don't care about the Earth. They're trying to destroy corporate profits. And they were remarkably successful at kind of spinning that narrative. It's called the Wise Use Movement.
1: And the term Wise Use came from uh, David Brower Day's there was the wise use of natural resources, which meant multiple use, which is different than wilderness, leave it alone, right? And so the uh, corporate lackeys formed what they called the wise use movement to counter, you know, this earth first, you no know, in defense of Mother Earth, no compromise from Mother Earth.
0: The environmental movement has moved so far to the center in large part because there's no one at the edge saying, we have... We are part of nature. Nature is part of us. That's become kind of like, what? How could you even think that? No, no, no. We're very separate. And these people that believe in the Earth are really kind of odd. They're wacky. We need to marginalize them.
1: Yeah, the the Earth First movement were deep ecologists, right? And their their inspiration came from several characters, but primarily from nature itself. But Arnie Ness was the Norwegian, Norwegian philosopher who wrote the D and coined kind of the term deep ecology versus shallow ecology. And so I think a lot of what we see now that gets called environmentalism is really shallow ecology versus deep ecology. And you know, we have to just admit that the human species is an anthropocentric creature. Anthropocentric meaning you know, human humans are the center of the earth and the reason for everything. Well, that just turns out not to be true. It's not reality. We are but a strand in the web of life, as John Muir said.
0: Where do we go from here as a movement?
1: I think nature's going to dictate that, and we're already seeing it with extreme weather events. You know, when you have so many Category Five hurricanes and you have the kind of dr- droughts and floods. Uh, that are affecting large numbers of people we still have short-term attention span so people have already forgotten about katrina and sandy but um you know what's really going on with the biosphere the planet earth is that it's getting spastic that's what an extreme weather event it's a spastic blip in you know in one part of the biosphere. And the biosphere is made up of about 9 interrelating cycles, you know, or life support cycles and systems like the hydrologic cycle and the nitrogen cycle. They're heavily damaged. There's a methodology now called the planetary boundaries out of Stockholm that's able to put a lot of uh, science and data to just how damaged these systems are. But, you know, nitrogen cycle is, is something most people don't know much about. The nitrogen is fundamental to the process of photosynthesis. So you're not gonna have life on Earth without nitrogen. On the other hand, if you have way too much nitrogen, you begin to kill the oceans. With all that artificial nitrogen and all the industrial agriculture now, that runoff into the watershed goes into creeks, they go into rivers, they go into oceans. There are now over 600 dead zones in the ocean right off of major rivers. The water can't support the oxygen that the fish need to breathe because they do breathe oxygen underwater, and that's a dead zone. Well, you know, that's the bottom of the food chain. You you can muck around with the top of the food chain, and we don't want to see the bald eagle go or the polar bears, but it's way worse when you muck around with the bottom of the food chain, and that's what we're doing. That's how we're throwing off the, the great cycles of mother nature. And at some point, one hopes will generate the political will to make the kind of paradigm shift changes necessary. So a great societal U-turn to a kind of ecological common sense and human dignity that
0: might save the day. Um, Do you believe that's gonna happen, Randy? Not
1: at all. You know, I mean, if I, you know, optimism and hope need to be distinguished. Optimism is based on some amount of data where you look at the data and say, well, I see rough rough times ahead, but I see that we're gonna make through because of the data. Hope is just sort of blind hope, you know. I don't see any reason to be, uh,
0: you know, bright and positive about it. There's nothing pointing in the direction of mass mobilization of political will. You no,
1: know, not even the big environmental groups are really telling
0: us how bad it is. And why you do you know? think that is? Why, Why do we not hear how bad it is? <sighs>
1: Boy, a lot of them are fundraising machines, and, and, and they don't want to, you know, uh, depress the public. Uh, they think it'll turn off their donors. Uh, you have to build uh, hope along the way uh, through victories and, and, and build the movement. But uh, most of them are not really movement-oriented. They aren't really people's movements. You don't see sort of uh, something that's going to be a kind of people's uprising, you know. I think there are some legitimate things, positive things to say about the Paris Agreement, and it's not getting the job done. There have been three or four great gatherings of the planet around environmental issues. In 1972, in Stockholm was the first UN conference. In 1992, in Rio, was the second one. I went to that one and got arrested protesting uh, H.W. Bush, the president of the U.S., in his re-election bid.
0: How many times have you been arrested, Randy?
1: Well, about 19, best I can recall.
0: <laughs> and when you, like a lot of people, that would be scary. You know, especially now, I think, you know, young people would think, wow, arrested? That's gonna be on my record for life. And I mean, you don't hear about people getting arrested for things they believe in anymore.
1: Yeah. No, and, and I think 9-11 has something to do with yeah. that. You asked earlier, you know, why, why does the current environmental movement feel a bit gutless? And uh, I think the 9-11 incident caused people to self-censor, overly so. I mean, there was reason to be cautious for a while, but there was not reason to give up the deeper commitment to these greater issues. Uh, You know, and life on planet Earth for multiple generations and eons into the future, it's hard to find a a greater issue than that, frankly speaking. Uh, So times have shifted, and we've lost lost the guts and gumption from a lot of these organizations. Sometimes we needed the element of surprise to climb a building and hang a banner against, you know, Burger King or Home Depot or Mitsubishi or the World Bank or the whatever. And I recommend to everybody out there, particularly the young people, you know, uh, put your body on on the line in a nonviolent way, right? Do it responsibly, but understand the consequences. And uh, this is a life and death issue. We're talking about life and death of the of, uh, you know, not future, just future generations of us, us humans, but all life on Earth, you know. And uh, the rest of the web of life has just as much right to evolve in its own direction as, as we do. So, you know, we may be the human species self-absorbed in ourselves much of the time, but we need to get outside of that bubble and understand That uh, you know there is no human species without a healthy web of life, and it is deeply damaged. And we don't have much time. We only have time for big steps in the right direction.
0: People now, I think, feel like if they sign a online petition, that's pretty much the same as putting your body in the line of harm. I mean,
1: well, people don't sign an online really. They you know they click a button, you know, clicktivism, and and it just is uh, relatively worthless, if not in fact damaging. In terms of getting the job done, so I recommend cut that shit out, quit doing it, do something more meaningful. You know, do something real. You know, work with your neighbors and your friends, and march down the street to some outfit that's doing something nefarious, and just tell them, you know, you want them to change. And when they don't, go back a second time and a third time. We called it the three by three strategy. You know, go at least three times and ask them. And then, you know, if they still don't, you know, particularly say at, at college universities, go to the administration and say, "Look, we want 100% renewable energy, you know, and we want it fast. You know, we'll give you six months, get it done. You know, we got to save this planet. You know, divest, you know, your your college endowment, and we want that done nine months or less. That's all you get. You know, the same time it takes to birth a human. You know, quit pissing around, get this shit done." You know, and, and ask them, you know, be polite the first time, be less polite the second time, be less polite the third time, and the fourth time, do nonviolent civil disobedience, shut down that administration building on the college campus, don't let them get away with this shit, they're killing your planet, you know, they're killing your future careers, You're, you might graduate with a degree like 8,000 people did yesterday at AT&T Park in San Francisco where the Giants play, right? And they're all hopeful, you know, spirited people who want to get out there. But I told them in my, my speech yesterday, you know, there's no social justice and there's no vibrant economy on a nearly dead planet. And that's what's going on. So get off your butt, quit clicking the computer and get out there and raise
0: some hell. So how did Rainforest Action Network begin?
1: I rented a desk at Friends of the Earth. I was a wannabe environmental activist, you know, and I proposed at a board meeting at Friends of the Earth. That uh, they start a rainforest, save the rainforest department and hire me to run it, right? Uh, this was after my 10 years in the desert with the Hopi Indians and the Four Corners film. Then one of the top board members said, who is this guy, Randy Hayes? And what's he ever going to do to save the rainforest? Let's just not do this, you know. And then <laughs> Mike rozell wanders into the photocopy room. So I said, well, screw it, Mike. Let's just start our own organization. And he said, uh, well, what do you want to call it? and the desk next to me was another rented desk from pesticide action network run by this wonderful woman named Monica and and I I said well how about rainforest action network we started the organization that night and we finished off the six pack of beer And the next day, um, we said, well, let's go over and visit Herb Gunther at Public Media Center and and ask his
0: advice. Herb Gunther's Public Media Center was an advertising agency for nonprofits that specialized in full-page eco-information attack ads in the New York Times. Herb is amazing.
1: And one of the first things he said, he says, look, there's no serious campaign without a media strategy and a media campaign. And he says, and you should do three things. You know, you should do a an inexpensive national media campaign with a lot of donated placement of magazine ads and such. And he said, we'll we'll work. We'll do the ads for you. We'll do full page, camera ready. You know, mockups, and you just get them out. You know, whether you get them into some you know hippie vegetarian newsletter that goes out in a neighborhood, or whether you get them in Time magazine. And we did all the above. We just worked that really hard, and we began to get serious attention across the country. He said, and then you've got to launch, you know, a grassroots campaign, pick a target and attack. You know, and Burger King was our first campaign. Burger King, you know, got most of their beef from Central American rainforests, and that was the primary cause of the destruction of rainforests in places like Costa Rica, right? And then third thing, he says, you've got to build a membership so you're not dependent on foundation money because the tail sometimes wags the dog, and these foundation people have all their money invested in corporations. And he says, don't go too far. Don't go too anti-capitalist. Our direct mail campaign was a packet called Five Reasons to Boycott Burger King. And it had a coupon or a little postcard to send to Burger King. So it was an activist tool that was real. And back then, when they started getting hundreds and then thousands of these, these postcards, it got their attention. It only took us 18 months to get Burger King onto one bended knee. And then, you know, they canceled a $35 million beef contract with Costa Rica. And that sent shockwaves through the fast food industry that they knew they couldn't get away with the shit any longer. We didn't have a lot of money back then. We didn't have uh, political power and we didn't have financial power. So we organized people power.
0: Is Trump a distraction? Are we being distracted from the real issues of the day, which are planetary collapse by this buffoon?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Because just remember things were very bad pre-Trump you know we were in dangerous waters pre-Trump and uh yeah certain things are are worse now or we're losing you know another set of years the way we did under eight years of of Ronald Reagan and four years of H.W. Bush and and you know the Democrats uh eight years of of Clinton were no bastions of great paradigm shift but they were a lesser of two evils in terms of the political parties, ecologically speaking, and, and a distinct difference. I disagree with Ralph Nader that, you know, it was twiddle-dee, twiddle-dumb, that there was no distinction. I think there is a distinction. On the other hand, it's absolutely true that no political party is really telling the ecological truth about what needs to be done to reshape the global economy, to get our our industrial foot off the throat of natural systems.
0: So you've spent time thinking about what is required for an ecological U-turn. Tell us some of the ingredients from how we think about capitalism differently to how we think about how we work together as a species.
1: I don't believe that that capitalism is a good long-term bet for an economic system for planet Earth. On the other hand, there's no wind in the sale of any coherent alternatives right now. And so I think we have no other choice but to try to ecologize the rules of capitalism as best we can, simply to buy time. You know, one of the reasons it's fundamentally unreformable is it undercuts democracy. You know, it will find the loopholes. It'll buy off the politicians. It'll take over the political parties. It'll form its own political parties. It, there's just an anti-democratic nature to big business, Right. And so, uh, but a true cost economy is one that internalizes the externalities for those who know that economics speak. But what that all really means in simple terms is the the pollution costs to the earth and to the future are not internalized in the price you pay for goods and services. And so the point is not really to internalize those pollution externalities, it's to get rid of the damn things. Right, but a true cost economy can begin to do that. A lot of the most heinous things should just simply be banned outright. Uh, we banned the production of of or use of DDT in in the United States. Other things can be regulated. Problem is, is that the anti environmental right wing has has demonized regulation. We need small government and deregulation. You know that comes out of a strategy they've been employing for you know twenty or thirty years. But uh, Uh, So a true cost economy and and a circular economy in the sense of zero waste, closed loop, sustainable production and consumption economy. That's what we need, right? So uh, we got to reduce virtually all forms of waste. All the minerals and metals need to be reused ad nauseum as long as we can. Uh, Remember the the distinction between non-renewable resources and renewable resources, you know, you can have baskets and clothing out of fiber that's a renewable resource and you can replenish that in a way you can't replenish, you know, gold and silver mined out of the body of the earth. And things like old growth forests are non-renewable resources. They are not renewable resources. You know, a tree farm, a monoculture tree farm is not an, a forest, you know, it's a crop. It starts with, with uh, ecologizing the economy, the rules of the economy, a true cost economy. Uh, a second thing, and it's obvious to most people, is 100% renewable energy. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. We got that one figured out. But the third point is is around 100% ecological farming. We have got to get rid of industrial agriculture. It's a nightmare. You know, we're we're really screwing things up with industrial agriculture, and so we can't go from you know six to seven to eight to nine to ten to eleven to 12 billion people. It's not okay. We need humanistically to get back to three billion and then, and then assess how much have we damaged the planet? What's the carrying capacity of the planet for three billion people at what lifestyle? Do we need to go smaller is that, or is that okay? We won't know that until we get back down to that. So low impact lifestyles are really important to the process. And it starts with, you know, how do you get the billion top over consumers down to a sustainable level of lifestyle? And you can't do it through voluntary simplicity because that's just too boutique and not at scale.
0: If we can't do it through voluntary simplicity, like how do we get people to realize that the plastic shit they bought at Walmart three weeks later is inevitably going to end up in the landfill?
1: Yeah. Well, a responsible government doesn't allow that stuff to be produced in the first place. You know, that's not okay. (laughs) But we don't have responsible government. We don't really have democracy. We don't have a two-party system. We have two aspects of a one-party system. you got the Democratic side of the big business party and the Republican side of the big business party. But we got the big business party running this country in so many ways. So we don't have zero democracy, but we sure as shit don't have a healthy democracy.
0: So one of the last meetings we went to together, Randy, was uh, a planning exercise that you're involved in for kind of post-apocalyptic planning, like when the shit hits the fan. Right. Tell us a little bit about why you're engaged in that and 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 what it tells us about where we're at. There's a
1: lot of pressure to sort of be positive and candy coat the situation. But, you know, it's, the truth is, you know, if you look at the last 40 years of, of activism, so many people have said all of the common sense things that needed to be said about renewable energy and low-impact lifestyles and... And such, you know, from Donella Meadows and The Limits to Growth to people like David Brower and Lester Brown, and but common sense and reason are insufficient tools to save the planet. And yet, what's the strategy of most environmental groups and social change groups around the world? Well, just explain common sense and reason again. Well, it isn't getting the job done, you know and particularly around the kind of heinous levels of profit that are being made in these polluting processes, and, and now the outsourcing and the globalization of manufacturing in places where uh, you know uh, they don't even have the sufficient regulations or just a lot less policing of the regulations. We haven't made the, the et- ecological U-turn in the right direction. So the only reasonable assumption is, well, at some point, the systems will collapse you know planetary systems are non-linear systems we don't know quite when we can't predict any kind of years uh, but i'm not very positive about the next seven years and certainly not the th- next 30 years and, and and for sure the next 70 years you know are going to be major turmoil uh, so that's the sort of time horizon i put to it uh, and so um, and say say we do collapse well what does collapse mean is it sort of a A singular punctuated apocalyptic thing of all of the uh, satellite systems and around the planet and all the grids and all the delivery of industrial food, agricultural foods to the planet. Uh, Well, could be that, but probably actually won't be. It'll probably be stair step, just like the 2008 economic crisis where we dropped down, people lost a third of their savings on average, you know, and now we've sort of leveled off and we feel okay again. And again, kind of out of sight, out of mind or short-term thinking, we feel like we're okay, but we're not okay. You know, we're going to have another 2008 economic crisis. And that's not even the worst of things, really, because uh, it's when the the biogeophysical systems of the planet really stop performing to support life. You know and most commonly people think of oh well two degrees centigrade average temperature rise and climate change or runaway climate change going even higher than that i mean we don't know how these things are going to play out
0: so the exercise that you're involved in is to the irrespective of how they unfold there will likely be a number of people on the planet that survive
1: Absolutely. We have to just sort of assume so or hope so. I think it'll happen in sort of continental regions and it'll be shell shocking well beyond, a you know, a category five Katrina in New Orleans, you know, and it could be Africa and droughts and, and massive famines where 10 million, a hundred million people die. You know, I mean, I'm sorry to say so, but I, that's what I truly think is quite possible where people are still after various forms of collapse. uh, We certainly don't want to rebuild based on the same system that got us into this problem in the first place. We want to rebuild in fundamentally different ways. Well, what does that mean, you know? It certainly, to me, means the same thing that I just threw out as the major agenda. You know, a true cost economy that that doesn't allow you to externalize pollution uh, situations. It means 100% renewable energy. It means ecological farming and not industrial agriculture. It means low-impact lifestyles. It means a lot of bioregional local self-reliance, but not isolation. We need to. We really need to highlight compassion and being compassionate to our neighbors, whether that's in the next valley over or across the oceans. We need serious compassion training and uh, going on hand-in-hand with this because otherwise, you know, you slip into the kind of fascist scenarios, uh, that you see in a lot of the, uh, sort of millennial Hollywood films these days.
0: Yeah. A lot of dystopian narratives out there. When you think about, um, your next 10 years of activism, what, what will it involve?
1: Well, I want to do a hundred million dollar public relations campaign and I want to do it in six regions of the world. If we want to stop the sixth great extinction, because remember there's no human life without a healthy web of life. And we are radically diminishing the web of life. So it's one of the great issues that's being forgotten in this sort of mania around things like Trump. The Nature Needs Half campaign. Uh, it's, you know, it's a campaign for all of us. If you protect half of the flora and fauna of a certain ecological zone, like you know a grassland in northern Africa or a Central American tropical rainforest, you can protect 90% of the species there you know if you protect 50% of a ecosystem type you can save 90% of the species types of flora and fauna and that's that's really important i'd spend the money in six regions of the world equally i'd give in each region i'd give half of their chunk away to local groups to do things and this would be around public relations not really you know other aspects of of social change but just getting this what feels like a radical message out there because again the ecological truth tellers are not getting this kind of a message out there it's not coming from any of the major political parties it certainly won't come from any of the transnational corporate executives it's not even coming from any elected officials that i'm aware of it doesn't come from the major social change groups of the planet whether they're human rights groups or environmental groups and so we've got to get that message out we've got to alert uh, the planet the people of the planet, that there's no time left except big steps in the right direction. And that starts with a clarion call to say what those steps are.
0: Given all the information that you have, and I think, you know, you portray it very accurately, how does it make you feel personally?
1: Well, I don't think anger is an inappropriate response to the death of the planet. So I get really pissed off. You know, this is, you know, this is, really is life and death stuff. You know, I've had friends, you know, people like Chico Mendez in the Amazon who are are now are dead, you know, and I've got a lot of other friends with life, you know, threats against their lives. And, and, you know, the statistics of the number of murdered activists are just growing around the planet and that's just not okay. And then there's the extinction of species, man, that is unacceptable. You know, whether that's some unknown flying insect or, or, you know, the megafauna, Species of tigers and polar bears, you know. I mean, this is, this this stuff pisses me off. We also, I think, need to be pointedly nonviolent and do civil disobedience from that perspective. Uh, tough love when we need to exhibit tough love. So, you know, if that means blockading, you know, a meeting where the captains of industry are trying to promote business as usual, like in Davos at the economic summits, well, then shut it down. You know, shut that town down for two years, you know, not just the conference itself. You know, say, look, don't ever have a conference here. It's not okay. You know, these people are killing the planet.
0: I want to thank Randy for being the coolest dude I know. Every time I get to hang out with Randy, I feel like it's exactly what I've been missing. Randy says what so many feel and know to be true. The planet is in bad shape, and we need to implement high-impact strategies immediately. It often feels like we're in a lowest common denominator negotiation in which consumerism always wins, and if we're lucky, the environment gets damaged just a little less quickly. Earth First and Rainforest Action Network bring a completely different energy to the table. It's about harnessing people power rather than leveraging corporate influence. The term ecoterrorism has been intentionally misapplied to shut down any kind of nonviolent civil disobedience that rocks the boat. We need to claim back that space for peaceful, nonviolent demonstrations against those who pollute the planet. What I took away from today's show is that there's nothing more important than life on this planet and that we can't lose sight of this during our everyday work. As Randy said, there's no social justice, no venture capital, no Uber on a dead planet. This is a personal issue for every one of us, and whether it's getting your campus or pension to divest from fossil fuels or fighting for clean water in your community, there comes a time when each of us needs to stand up and be counted. Next week, I'll be at the Putney School in Vermont to give the commencement speech at their graduation. I had the privilege and fun of attending this extraordinary farm school. Putney is where I started to learn about community, curiosity, courage, and most importantly, it's where I met Alex, with whom I've been adventuring for 23 years. The speech will be recorded for your listening pleasure and aired on episode 17. Finally, I'm so excited to share with you that this week, PodShip Earth won the 2018 Mixcloud Award for Best Online Talk Show in the Science Technology category. We were up against some very tough competition, including Neil deGrasse Tyson's Star Talk Radio. I want to thank each of you so much for voting for Podchip Earth. Mixcloud is a crowdsourced online music streaming service with 3 million active users, including Wired Magazine, the Harvard Business School, TED Talks, and former President Barack Obama. Thank you so much for being part of the Podship Earth journey. From the entire Podship Earth crew, sound engineer Rob Spate, producer Nancy Ferranti, executive producer David Kahn, and me, Jerry Blumenfeld, have an action-filled